navigate the journey to becoming a great lawyer with expert guidance on topics that range from trial skills to corner office management. Here you will learn how to tap into your potential for legal greatness. I'm Andrew Smiley, and this is The Mentor, ESQ. Welcome uh, to this episode of the Mentor ESQ podcast. So happy to have you joining me today. And I'm really looking forward to introducing you to my guest today. Um, happy to welcome Cliff Aaron, a partner at the prominent law firm of London Fisher, uh, to the Mentor podcast. Welcome, Cliff. Thanks so much, Andrew. And um, Cliff, Cliff is a new a friend of mine. Our firms have known each other, and I know many of his partners at London Fisher because they're my adversary. Uh, when we have uh, big personal injury cases uh, where the companies that we're suing uh, bring in the big hitters to defend them, it's often they'll reach out to London Fisher, and we've litigated cases against each other, uh, and we have a mutual respect for uh, each other's advocacy. And um, and it was earlier this year in 2020 that I had just completed uh, giving a webinar for the New York State Academy of Trial Lawyers, which some of you may have uh, attended. And the topic was litigating personal injury cases in federal court. And right after that, uh, that webinar aired, I received a phone call from Cliff uh, to my office. And I saw he was with London Fisher and he asked me to give him a call back. And I gave him a call back and we had an amazing conversation. And, uh, and I realized what an amazing person Cliff is. And I said, I would love it if you would come onto my podcast and uh, share your story and your journey uh, being a lawyer and what your life has involved to this point. And Cliff very graciously said, absolutely, I'd be happy to. So Cliff, can you share with us uh, a bit of what you shared with me uh, in our first conversation about um, your journey as a lawyer to where uh, you are today? Well, absolutely, thank you, Andrew. So um, it's been quite an interesting journey. Uh, when I started out, I had my eyesight. I am a blind attorney, as you said. Uh, I had my eyesight, uh, went to law school, uh, and I'm quite a bit older than Andrew, so uh, I'm 62, I don't mind saying that. And when I went to law school, there were no computers. So I was quite lucky to be able to have my sight, to be able to do all the reading that was necessary for studying and passing exams. And there were, were no computer generated exams. Everything was in a blue book. So fortunately I was able to do that. Uh, I got my first job in the Bronx District Attorney's Office, tried quite a few cases, again, completely sighted, and it was fantastic. I loved the experience and uh, learned quite a bit. Um, as I was nearing the end of my career in the Bronx DA's office back in the late 1980s, I realized I was losing my peripheral vision. And uh, we, we really couldn't figure out what was happening. I went from doctor to doctor, and long story short, I have something called retinitis pigmentosa, which is a genetic condition. Both of my parents were carriers. It's recessive, it's a recessive gene, which means that um, uh, there's a certain percentage chance that the offspring will have it. So I have two sisters, neither of whom have RP, but I do have it. And um, I realized as I was losing my uh, peripheral vision, there had to be something going on. We went from doctor to doctor, and I don't have the typical pigmentation in my eyes, so no one could see what was happening. It, some of the doctors didn't even believe that I was really losing my eyesight until one day they did, a, 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 I guess, a diagnostic test, which is not a very pleasant test. It's called an electroretinogram, 
where they actually stick a wire and electrode in your eye to see what impulses are being generated by the retina. And this doctor shut down the machine within a few seconds and said to me, I'm not getting any readings from your retina. And I had no idea what that meant. I said, is that good? He said, no, it's really bad. He said, this is what you have. It's called RP and you're going to go blind in five years. That's how I was diagnosed. I'm like, what? Wow. I mean, at that point I had a child. My wife was pregnant with our second child. I was a budding young associate hoping to make partner on a Wall Street firm at that time. I was down on Wall Street, had left the DA's office. And uh, it, it felt like my whole life had crashed in on me because I was like, wow, you know, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with the fact that you may never see your kids, may never see my wife again? How am I going to continue my livelihood as a lawyer? Obviously, I had to stop driving at a certain point, which is a total loss of independence. Um, it was very, very difficult. And, um, and there's a, a huge amount of differences to be able to try a case cited and see everything that's going on in the courtroom and then have to rely on your other senses so much. I think the thing that helped me quite a bit from a professional standpoint, we can talk about you know, my private life as well, anything you want to know. But from, from a professional standpoint, I really didn't know what to do. I got involved with an organization which really helped pull me out of the deepest hole of my life, which is called the Foundation Fighting Blindness. And they were kind enough to hook me up with a federal judge in New York, in New York City in the Southern District named Judge uh, Richard Casey, who sadly has since passed on. But, but Richard Casey was the first blind judge ever uh, appointed to the federal bench. And um, I called him and he was incredible. I introduced myself and said, would it be okay if I spoke to you because I'm very concerned about my future. He cleared his entire docket the next day and allowed me to come in and ask any questions I had. And so you talk about mentors over the years, uh, Judge Casey was my mentor to help me work through this and figure out, okay, how can I continue to be a lawyer? How can I continue to try cases? And how can I continue to give back to the community and teach and give lectures and, and do the things I always wanted to do? And um, I just never looked back. I mean, as I lost more and more of my eyesight, uh, Judge Casey became more and more helpful. And uh, ultimately, very sadly, he died of a heart attack. And I remember speaking to his secretary and I said, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not really ready to do this on my own. I never got to ask him some questions. And she said to me, Cliff, you're now the teacher. He's passed the torch and you have to be able to help other people. And it, it, th those words really hit me because I just really wasn't w ready to do this. And, uh, and it, get, it comes to a point where you gotta just do it. And um, it's been interesting, it's been interesting. So having had the opportunity to try cases cited, and now I try cases with a seeing eye dog, I'm also very fortunate. Um, some of my clients allow me to try cases all over the United States. So I've tried cases in Florida and uh, I tried a very big case in Memphis, Tennessee of all places. And it was quite interesting because, you know, here, here's a Yankee coming down to the south <laughs> representing a big corporation. So that's scary enough. And then you throw on top of that a guy who was blind with a seeing eye dog. But it, it worked out actually really well for us. Uh, afterwards, the jury asked if they could speak to me. And I knew I said, you don't want to talk to me. You just want to pet the dog. And they said, you're absolutely right. <laughs> Cliff, I want to uh, we're going to dig a little deeper into, you know, what it's like to try a case without sight. Um, mm -hmm. I'm fascinated by that. I want to learn about that. But I want to back up a little bit. Um, how old were you when uh, you were given this diagnosis? So I was probably just about 31, 32 years old. <clears throat> so that's about 30 years ago I was I was diagnosed. Um, I didn't really understand what it meant because at the time I was driving a car, I was playing sports. Um, you know, I would take my kids, to, uh, my child to soccer practice. We had the second child on the way. Um, I was coaching one of her teams 
and I just didn't really understand the magnitude of what they were talking about. I said, okay, well, so I'm going to lose some of my sight. They said, no, eventually you're going to go completely blind. And I'm like, I, I don't think I can deal with that. I mean, how, how do you live without your, your eyesight? And uh, it sort of hit like a ton of bricks. But, you know, it was probably about 30 some odd years ago. Yeah, just about 30, 32 years ago. How long did it take from the time of diagnosis till you actually um, lost all of your vision? So I'm very fortunate for me, it's been a relatively slow progression. So while now all I can really see right now is dark and light, I was able to read and I was able to do things for quite a while. I stopped driving when, even though I could still see, I realized potentially it was dangerous. What would happen if a kid came from my peripheral vision and ran in front of my car? And I just never wanted to be, wanted to be put in a position like that. Um, so with my wife's coaxing, um, and she was right. I mean, it's hard to give up. That's huge independence to give that up, particularly when you live in the suburbs. We had just moved out to the suburbs. So when you live in the city, obviously, you could take mass transportation, even though that has its own challenges. But living out in the suburbs and not having access to uh, transportation can be very, very uh, difficult and uh, isolating. And uh, that was a hard decision, but it was the right decision. And, and even though I could still see at that time, um, I thought it was the right decision to stop driving. So I would say, you know, to answer your question in a long-winded way, I would say, really, I lost my vision. Um, this is my second seeing eye dog. I've had him for about seven years. I had a dog before him for seven or eight years. And then I used a cane for about two years. So I would say about 17, 18 years ago is when I really started having difficulty seeing um, even though I could still get around with a cane, but um, I would say certainly in the last 15 years, I, it's pretty much just light and dark. Can you share with us what the emotional journey was for you um, from the time you received this diagnosis and, uh, and, and as you transitioned to the realization uh, that you were losing your vision? Uh, you know, I'm always amazed by my clients. Um, I've um, been fortunate to represent some amazing people who have suffered some catastrophic injuries, including blindness, including being paralyzed from the neck down uh, at a young age. Uh, and, and time and time again, they show me um, how remarkable people can be and resilient people can be um, in that when faced with a sort of a choice of, you know, moving forward uh, with a positive attitude or not, 100% of the time I'm seeing people moving forward with a positive attitude and doing well. And I'm just I'm curious what that must be like. And if you wouldn't mind sharing with us, you know, your journey through that process uh, of how you came to grips. And obviously you've done it uh, with, uh, with amazing grace and success. Well, that's very kind of you to say that. Um, it, it, it's certainly difficult. I mean, when you think about the various stages of grief, I remember when I was in college, I read a book by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross on the stages of grief after someone dies. And it absolutely is, is applicable um, in, any, in anything that happens in someone's life that's, that's difficult. But it, it certainly happened to me. First, there's denial, then there's anger, then there's bargaining, and ultimately there's acceptance. I mean, there has to be, because you have two choices in life. You could sit at home, and curl up in a fetal position and do nothing with your life. Or you can pull yourself up and say, look, no one's gonna feel sorry for me. I don't want anyone to pity me. Um, I wanna get out there and I wanna make a difference. And I also wanna show people 
that I can, you know, I can still be a productive member of society, notwithstanding the fact that I've lost my eyesight. And so um, it took a while. I mean, I'm obviously doing this quickly with you, but it took years to get through those first couple of stages. And I was very angry and I gave up on religion and I was really, really upset. How could God let something like this happen? What did I do? And then you ultimately, you know, you, you, you got, you got to make a decision in life. And, um, I accept it. Um, the, uh, working with the seeing eye, which is where I got my seeing eye dogs from has made an incredible ch- a change in my life. Uh, having Ford as my dog, which is ironic, he came with the name Ford, and I do a lot of work for Toyota and, and Infinity and Lexus, so they're not happy with his name, but I didn't give it to him. But when I'm trying cases, when I'm walk, walking in the city using Ford, um, I have, I'm, I'm incredibly empowered. I have that independence. And, what kind of dog, uh, and what kind so, of dog is Ford? So, so Ford is half Golden Retriever and half Labrador, and uh, just the sweetest dog in the world. He really is. Um, everybody wants to pet him, and that, of course, becomes difficult because I don't like to say no, but if I'm walking or if I'm working with him, it can be a distraction to him, and then I could get hurt. Yeah. So while um, they teach us never to let anybody touch your dog, everyone has to make their own decisions. So when I'm holding the harness and the leash together, he understands that we're working, and if someone reaches out a hand to pet him, he typically will turn his head away and not, not allow it to happen, although in his later years, I think he's sort of forgot that one uh, trait I tried to teach him, that one trick. Um, but, but that is what they're supposed to do. Um, now what I'll do is we have, you know, I work in a, in a high rise building and obviously if I get into the elevator and I push the button, I have him sit, people get on with me. So I know it's going to be impossible for me to prevent people from touching him. So once I have him sitting, I drop the harness. And so he knows if I'm only holding the leash, then he's free to, to be petted by people or to, you know, to stand up and, and sort of be distracted. But once I pick up the harness, he he ha- he knows he's working, and uh, and that I need him to totally focus. And um, what does Ford do for you? How does it work with the seeing eye dog? So uh, I mean, you know, it's funny. Most people get nervous when they go to court because they have to argue emotion. I get nervous because I'm not going to be able to find the court. I mean, that's really the way it is with me. Once I get into court, my attitude is. What could the judge possibly do to me? I'm losing my eyesight. There's nothing to me more scary than that. So um, Ford, Ford is taught to take me, basically to take me around barriers. So if there's something blocking a sidewalk or there's somebody in front of me, <clears throat> he will take me around that person or that barrier. Um, he is taught to stop at all um, intersections. When we get to the end of the sidewalk, we go down that little ramp in New York City that, that most, if not all, um, sidewalks have. He will stop and he will wait until I give him the command to proceed into the street. You have to give a little credit to the blind person. So obviously I'm very attuned to listening. So if traffic in front of me is moving, I have him wait. If traffic to my side starts to move, then I know the light is turned you know, green in my direction. And the good news is there's no right on red in New York City. So we're able to cross hopefully safely. But he's also taught, and this is the scariest thing to me, when I first got him, we were crossing, I remember we were crossing Church Street to get to my office from the World Trade Center. And uh, as we walked into the middle of the street, he stopped. And obviously, I'm taught to stop with him. And a bicyclist, a messenger, came flying through the intersection. So while we had the green light, he blew the light. And there's no question I would have gotten hit. But, but for the fact that the dog saw that, saw that, he stopped. Then I gave him the command. We continued to cross the street and we got safely to the other side. That's when I 
you know, I petted him and, and gave him all kinds of praise because that's what we're taught to do to show the dog that he just did an amazing job. Um, on a, in a similar way, um, I will tell you this, this was a scary experience. We were walking up a sidewalk. I like to get into work early, so we typically would get into the city by 6.30 in the morning to get to my office, and we're walking up the sidewalk, and he just wouldn't go. There's something that they teach these dogs called intentional disobedience. So while the dog is taught to listen to you on, on, on all occasions, there's one time that he's, he's told not to, and that's when it's a danger to both of you. So, for example, if I, I want him to walk onto a subway train and there's no tr subway car in the stop, if I tell him to walk straight onto the tracks, he won't do that. He will walk diagonally in front of me and stop. And he's telling me, I'm not going to let you go any further because there's danger in front of you. So as we were walking up the sidewalk, he actually engaged in intentional disobedience. I couldn't figure out what was going on, and I was getting frustrated with him. So I told him to go, and finally, as I got angry with him, I heard a voice from below, which is always a scary experience, and some guy said, wait, wait, wait a minute. And he came up. It was an open manhole cover. Oh the man God. was working down below, and he forgot to guard it. I would have gone right down into that hole. So the dog really, he truly saved wow. my life on that experience. I mean, it's just, it's amazing what they can do. Yeah. And obviously wow, in the courtroom, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I need to get from my, my, my table, I need to get from my table to the lectern to question the witness. I don't, want to, I don't want to be awkward socially. I don't want to trip. So the dog will take me around counsel table, will take me to the podium where I need to go. I know one thing you talk about uh, on, the, on the Mentor ESQ podcast, podcast quite a bit is for young attorneys, probably if you're trying a case either in a courtroom you've never been to before or in a state, like I'll, I'll go to states I've never been to before, I'll go several days or sometimes weeks early to get a feel for the courtroom that I'm going to be in. For me, that's really important because I need to know the layout. But anyone should do that. You, you should know what the judge's proclivities are. Where does the jury sit? Where is counsel's table relative to where you're going to ask your questions? I do that so I can train the dog ahead of time to take me from counsel table to the lectern and not waste everyone's time in the courtroom and also not look socially awkward when I do that. Can you tell us what skills you've learned um, being blind uh, that you've needed to acquire uh, to live your life as freely and independently as possible and also to um, practice the profession of being a trial lawyer. Yeah, well, I've certainly learned the skill of listening a little bit better. I mean, you really have to rely on your hearing quite a bit more. And that's also helped in terms of listening to people's you know, answers, whether it's at trial or at depositions. I, I do think I intimidate people because I, you know, I walk into a deposition and let's say I'm the lead attorney. I walk in with my seeing eye dog, I say good morning, I sit down. I don't have a pen or paper in front of me or a computer. I have nothing. And then I, I've been, you know, obviously I've been, uh, in, in a way I've been, I've been hurt because, you know, I've lost my eyesight, but, you know, I do believe that, you know, God giveth and God taketh away. So what I've lost in one, I, I've always had a very good memory. And um, I'll just sit there for eight hours and ask questions at a deposition. And I just think it totally freaks people out. So in a way, I have an advantage, even though I have a disadvantage. Uh, I think I have an advantage because I do think it intimidates people because that's, that's just the way I do it. I just get up there and I, I don't have a single note. And, and I know you talk about that quite a bit on the podcast about you really shouldn't get up there and you shouldn't read your opening statement and you shouldn't read your summation because it takes away. I mean, it really, really takes away from, uh, I think, your ability to be a, a successful lawyer. And yet um, I, I find that you know, young people are kind of married to those scripts. Obviously, I don't have that ability to do it. So 
one thing is, you know, learn to be a better, I've learned to be a better listener. Also, you know, technology is, is great. I think I'm a little bit of a dinosaur. I, I'm not real good with typing with computers, <clears throat> but my law firm has been phenomenal uh, to me in terms of making accommodations. They have really, really been great with the things I need. And one of the things I need is a software program called JAWS. And JAWS will read me everything that's on a computer screen. If I type something, it'll read it to me. It reads all my emails. Um, and so that's a really, really big help in terms of what I do. Uh, but um, a lot of it is, is trial and error. Um, it, it can be socially awkward. I mean, sitting in a courtroom, and uh, if someone doesn't say all rise because the judge is walking in, I don't know that the judge would just walked in. And I may be the only person still sitting down, and it's, that's just really embarrassing. And so I always speak ahead of time to the court office and say, would you please make sure you announce when the judge is entering or the judge is leaving or the jury is entering and the jury is leaving. So I know to stand up um, because that can be, as I said, awkward and embarrassing. Have you learned to read Braille? Uh, the only thing I ever learned with Braille were numbers. Uh, but you, I thought I would do that because perhaps I would need that for elevators or hotel rooms. And of course, just when I learned this kind of stuff, uh, they do away with Braille and elevators. Now everything's on a flat screen, so that's impossible to use. Some of the newer elevators are ridiculous. They're not even a, there's not even a, a button to push. So that, that, with, that, with that sort of thing, I would need help. Um, and in terms of, of hotel rooms, um, a lot of the room numbers are now, um, uh, I, I guess they're kind of raised, so you could feel the number. They're tactile. So I don't really need Braille. Braille is sort of a dying art in that regard. I, I know a lot of young people who were born blind. Uh, I was really amazed at some of the people I've met at the Seeing Eye when I got my first dog, and now I got Ford. And these young people, I'm mean, there reading menus in Braille. I'm like, wow, that's just unbelievable. It's, they, they can do it. They read as quickly as you could probably read a book, and it's amazing to me. But um, they were taught this from day one. You know, when you get to my age, it's, it's, it, the old saying really is, is true. It's hard to teach an old dog new tricks. And while I learned the numbers, um, I really never learned Braille itself. But again, with technology, it, it's sort of becoming obsolete. You don't really need it. So what do you do if you're at a restaurant and you're given a menu and you want to be able to know what's on the menu or you're preparing a case and there's a document that's normally not that easy to read where it's not clean and typed up where a software may identify it or you need to consider what's in a photograph because the photograph may have keys to the case in some way. Um, how do you handle those situations? So those are great questions and, and each one has a different answer. In terms of restaurants, I'm not proud. I, I'll, you know, I, I will make it very clear or it will, it will be clear to people because obviously I'm the only person in there with a seeing eye dog. I'll say to the waiter or the person I'm with, would you mind telling me what's on the menu? Okay. Um, and, and people don't mind. People are really, really great and they're happy to help. So that's easy because even the latest technology, which there are these miniature readers that you can use. Um, I've, I've actually been tapped to, to try some of these. And if you have dim lighting in, in restaurants, it will not pick up all the words on the menu. So you could really be missing a lot of the, a lot of the information that's there. So it's just easier for me if someone can just describe the, you know, what, uh, tell me what's on the menu. In terms of documents or photographs, that's, you know, that's an excellent question. Photographs are more difficult. So photographs, I have to rely on my associates and my young partners in my group who are really fantastic. So if, if I'm preparing for a deposition or for trial, they will describe the photograph. They'll tell me exactly where things are. 
I usually pepper them with 10 to 15 questions so I know exactly what the photograph looks like. I'm sure I drive them nuts. Um, but, but that I do have to rely on them so that when I do offer it into evidence or show it to a witness at a deposition, I know exactly what I'm showing them and uh, what, the, what the purpose is of my questioning. With documents, um, there's really one of two ways I can do it. <clears throat> I can scan it and then it'll be read to me, but I, I really don't like those computer-generated um, uh, words. I, I just don't like listening to a computer. And, and so what I'll do a lot of times is I'll tap someone, whether it's a paralegal or it's an associate in my, in my group, and say, let's go through some of these medical records so I know what to ask, so I know what the re uh, medical records say. <clears throat> and then I'm very fortunate, you know, I'm able to, to memorize dates of treatment, the doctors, the, the facilities they work at, the type of treatment received, um, when it began, when it ended, what was done. And if there's something favorable to me, I'll typically ask the witness whether they ever told the doctor this or whether they were ever told that they had made improvements on something. And when they deny it, I may show them the records and say, does this refresh your recollection as to whether you ever told Dr. So-and-so that in fact you were feeling better following this treatment? And you know, sometimes they'll say yes, sometimes they'll say no, it doesn't refresh my recollection. Okay, that's fine. And then we'll deal with it down the road, whether I take the deposition of the um, doctor because maybe they haven't been completely truthful or maybe I wait till trial, but the fact of the matter is it's there. Cliff, I'm able to do have it. you always had uh, a great memory or did you cultivate that and, and realize that you did when you were forced to because you uh, became blind? Yeah, I, I think the brain is an amazing thing, Andrew. I mean, obviously I was born with this condition even though I didn't know it. I remember as a young boy, I'd be doing my homework in my room and I'd yell, hey, mom, something's burning in the kitchen. And she'd say, what are you talking about? And then like five seconds later, she'd go, oh, my God. And something, in fact, was burning. So I've always had this heightened sense of smell. I think I had a heightened sense of hearing. And I think I've always been blessed with a really, really good memory. So while I didn't know I was losing my eyesight, I, clearly my brain knew something was wrong. And I, I think I was fortunate to have those other senses heightened, including my memory. It's amazing. I'd like to talk a little bit about trial preparation <clears throat> in trying cases. Um, when I try a case, and as you know, I, I mentor a lot and I, I teach trial skills. Uh, obviously, I'm a big believer in I preach about preparation. I preach about outlines, making notes, uh, having structure. I talk about writing things out. Uh, and this whole process that I like to go through to prepare me that I think is helpful for others to use uh, to prepare for trial so that when you get to the point of trial, you don't need the notes or an outline. Uh, you can speak freely, but they're there as a crutch if you need it. But certainly, um, I would be, I would have a very difficult time trying a case if I couldn't get organized by writing things out and creating outlines. How do you prepare for a trial or prepare for a deposition uh, in a way that you can give opening statements at a trial and, and do cross-examinations and, as you say, an eight-hour deposition um, without the ability to write things down or type notes up. Um, what's your process for that? So it, it, it's really not that much uh, – uh, it's not that more, more uh, difficult, I, I don't think, uh, obviously, I rely on my memory, but it's, it's all about organizational skills. You talked about that. So in my mind, what I do is I will tape something and I'll listen to it over and over and over again, and I'll formulate a, an outline in my mind. 
And, and that's how I do anything, whether it's a speech uh, for a, uh, at, at a, at a, at a uh, trial, whether it's a speech for a chari- charitable organization that I might belong to. I will outline exactly what I'm going to say in bullet points and then fill in that skeleton with the meat, practice it over and over and over again, and then hopefully be you know, somewhat fluent when it comes time to, uh, to, to give that opening statement, summation, whatever it may be. But organization is key. Yes, you're right. I don't have the ability to write it down and look at it, but I do have the ability to listen to it over and over and over again, memorize it, and keep it um, clear and organized and structured in my mind. And, and I think that's the key to being a really, really good lawyer. I think being prepared and being organized is critical. And it doesn't matter whether you're cited or not, you've got to be organized. So do you use like an iPhone and, and, and record notes or some other technology and record yourself and then you play it back and listen to yourself and maybe re-edit and re-record it? Is that what you do? Well, I'm embarrassed to tell you, again, I'm, I'm, I'm a dinosaur. I wish I could tell you, yes, it's exactly what I do but I still have a, 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 um, like a tape recorder in my office uh, with, a, with a micro tape on it. So I can either tape something myself so I remember it, or an associate will read a document to me and leave it either on my phone as a long message or leave it on my tape for me and I'll just play it over and over and over again until I have it memorized. And then if you want to um, create a document, let's say you're writing a memo of law or a letter uh, or an email, do you have software that you dictate uh, and, it, and it types it up? I do have that ability, although I found that to be somewhat frustrating. Um, even with, and I don't want to mention any names, but even, even with some of the best softwares that are specifically made for the legal profession, they don't pick up on certain words. The punctuation may not be there. So as I told you, I am a dinosaur. I probably do things the way that your dad used to do them when he was you know, in, in, his, in the prime of his life, because I tried I had cases actually against your dad. Never had the ability to try one, but we had cases against each other. And in the olden days, what we did is we dictated. And you gave your tape to your secretary and she typed it up. And he so I'm, I have to have it. He does that and I'm finally moving him away from that. <laughs> learning how to use uh, the notes recording feature. And um, yeah. Bill had, you know, with the tape and the headphones and the pedal, uh, the, the same machines, I can picture you using that, and they're, they're quite good. Yeah, and so it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. I mean, I don't, I don't have the pedal, but I do have, I have a microphone, which I can stop and start, and I can tape over things, and, but that's how I dictate reports, memos of law, um, whatever, it needs, whatever I need to get out, uh, analyses of depositions. Uh, I mean, for me, it's funny. I had, a, I had a very, very, very big case many years ago, uh, three people were, were very seriously injured pedestrians when a car went out of control in New York City. And there probably were eight defense counsel on that case. And I and one other attorney sort, sort of had to report to the same insurance company. And as soon as the deposition was over, we probably had 25 days of depositions with multiple witnesses. Um, as soon as the depositions were over, I'd go back to my office and dictate. And the reason I did that is because that's how I remembered it. You know, I, if I didn't do it that day, there was no way I was going to remember all the detail. So I used to get the reports out on a daily basis. And I remember this attorney saying to me, you know, you're really making me look bad. It takes me like weeks to get these reports out and you're doing them on a daily basis. And I'm like, it's survival. I have to do it. I don't mean to make you look bad, but I can't remember what was said three days ago. I need to get it down right away. So that's what I would do. And I, you know, I don't mind working long hours. So as soon as, as soon as I'm done, I'll get out there and dictate for as long as it takes to get it finished. How do you handle yourself in a courtroom at trial? Um, 
when you're giving a closing argument or you're cross-examining a witness. Those are two times that I feel, um, and also in addition to opening statements, um, that I like to make eye contact. I like to look at the jurors. I like to try and uh, look into their eyes. I, I like to really size up the witness on cross-examination, maybe move forward, move back, um, and try and get a sense of them and where to go. Um, obviously, you, you do not have that ability, um, but I, I'm, I'm certain that you have other abilities, and I'm curious what those are that you use uh, in a courtroom in those situations to get a pulse of what's going on and to really get you in the groove of what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, that's, that, that's a, you, you've really hit on uh, a great point because I think the hardest thing for me, having lost my eyesight, is, is not being able to see people's reactions. I mean, that, that is the hardest thing, I think, in terms of trying a case. And um, you really just have to rely more on your ability to listen, your hearing. Um, with jurors, it's, obviously it's impossible. I, I, I don't know what they're thinking. I get a feel, and my instincts typically are correct. I'll give you a couple examples. But, for example, with a witness, uh, I remember this one particular trial. I'm not proud of this, but this did happen. Um, I was getting killed. This was a witness called by plaintiff's counsel, and she was just absolutely killing me. And, and I had no idea where I was going to go with this case. But as I'm questioning her, I'm noticing that her voice is trailing off. So she's not looking at me when she's answering the questions. So I said to her, you know, Miss so-and-so, I, I realize that your voice just trailed away. Did you look away from me? Because, you know, they do say if people don't look you in the eye when they're answering, they may not be telling you the truth. So there were all kinds of objections. It didn't go very well. The judge, the judge admonished me, but I'll tell you this, that jury was watching her from that point on. If she looked away from me, they weren't going to believe a word she said. So I'm not proud of that, but it's the only tool I had because, quite frankly, I don't know why she was looking away from me. Um, really? But I sensed, that, I sensed that she was. Um, so I'm not proud of that, but that, that did happen. With jurors, it's really weird because it's like an instinct. I remember in this case in Florida, I... I I always try a case with a cited attorney because obviously if we need to read a transcript, uh, I, I can't do it. If there's something I need from a folder, I need someone to you know, help me find that particular photograph or document, whatever I want to enter into evidence. So in this particular case, I'm citing a case with, I'm trying a case with local counsel in Florida. We split the trial. I'm doing the summation. And I just, I sit down, I go, I just don't think that it went really well. He goes, oh no, it went great. I go, I don't think they were listening to me. He said, no, no, absolutely. I said, are you sure? He goes, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, long story short, we got popped. And I said, they didn't listen to a word I said. I said, you didn't pick up on that? So it was evident to me that something was wrong. I mean, the, the good news in that case is we actually get the verdict set aside because of an error the judge made, which made me feel better. But it's just so interesting to me that I picked up on the fact that that jury really wasn't listening. And the cited attorney thought things went great. Um, so I, can't, I, I wish I could give you a more definitive answer uh, other than relying on my hearing with witnesses. Um, it's very difficult with jurors. When I had that case down in Memphis, I do remember after speaking to the jurors afterwards. It wasn't only to, to pet the dog, but we did have a, a very candid conversation. And, and in, in Tennessee, jurors are allowed to take notes. And what one of the jurors said to me is, we really didn't like that, that plaintiff's lawyer in this case, Mr. Aaron. You couldn't see it. But every time he got up to question a witness, we put our pens down. And every time you, or you got up, we took notes. And I'm like, boy, I really wish I would have known that. It would have taken a lot of stress off me over the last two weeks. Sure. So there, I had no clue. 
that that was happening. And unfortunately, my counsel was with me, didn't tell me that. That would have been a good thing to know. But uh, it's just interesting. It's just it's an interesting way of doing things. I don't let it stop me. Um, I don't I don't ask for you know pity. I don't want anyone's compassion. Um, but I do know that it does impact some plaintiffs' cases because guy comes in and says he's got a bad back and he can never work again. What do you think the subtle message is when the jury sees me, a blind guy, getting up there with a dog trying a case? If I can work every day of my life, really, this guy can't work. So a lot of plaintiffs attorneys don't particularly care for me when I when I try cases against them. I can see that. I had, um, you may know without naming names, there was a prominent defense lawyer um, who was born without arms and legs. Yep, yep. He would try cases and uh, he wrote uh, notes with a pen in his mouth. Uh, That's right. Very bright man, very skilled trial lawyer. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, he... He had no problems doing his job, but again, you know, it's very hard to argue that somebody with an injury uh, is going to have a lot of pain and suffering when the lawyer uh, has a very serious disability, um, and you see how someone can excel. And I'm just, I'm just so, um, you know, I'm just, in, I'm impressed um, with your skill set and how you've adapted. And there's no doubt in my mind that you try a case just as well without sight as you would if someone, you know, was able to wave a magic wand and give you sight to try a case, maybe even better because your, your spidey senses, so to speak, uh, are so attuned as to everything that's going on around you. And especially during a trial, that's so important. Yeah. Well, that's, again, that's kind of you to say that. I, I hope so. You know, we all feel as trial attorneys, cited or not, oh my God, I didn't ask this question. Did I miss this one thing? Sure. We always, you know, think about things we did or didn't do that we probably should have done or could have done better. And, uh, and that happens to me a lot when I'm on trial. I'll, I'll wake up in the middle of the night saying, oh, I could have asked this or I should have done that. And it, I, I usually beat myself up because I said, you know, if I had an outline, I wouldn't have forgotten that. And you know what, even people with sight forget things. So you, you just can't beat yourself up. You do the best job you can, but organization and being prepared is just so, so important. Have you found that your skill set has improved as you've gotten older? I personally find that mine has. I find that um, whether it's just a, a little more wisdom, a little more years under the belt, a little more experience and having been in multiple situations that you're able to adapt and handle things better. How about you? Definitely. I, I don't think there's any substitute for experience. And so I do think in that regard, skill set, my, my skill sets have improved. Um, I, I, I'm very blessed. I love this profession. I love meeting not only uh, people, witnesses, uh, jurors. Uh, this profession has brought me into contact with clients who I never would have met in other states, uh, who I've become very close friends with as a result of defending them in cases. Um, but, but most of my best friends are plaintiff's attorneys because, look, we, we both have an obligation to defend uh, or to represent our clients um, as, as, as well as we can. And clearly, we have has to be within the bounds of, of ethics. But there's no reason why we can't fight hard in a courtroom and then walk out afterwards and shake hands or have dinner or have a drink. Because the bottom line is it's a profession and, and we have to treat it as such. And, and I've met some of my best, as I said, some of my best friends are plaintiff's attorneys because we've got this mutual respect because of what we each do. Yeah. What, I know that um, you are a mentor to many uh, as, a, as an attorney, uh, as a blind attorney. Uh, and I'm curious if, you know, what words of wisdom you may have for listeners uh, out there 
um, that may suffer either from uh, a vision impairment or some other type of physical disability that may make it uh, more challenging to be an attorney, that may make it more challenging to be a trial lawyer. Um, you know, what, what can you share from your experience that can benefit those that uh, may have a longer road ahead of them uh, suffering from some type of uh, impairment? Um, the first thing I would say is don't be afraid to ask for help. Um, that was the hardest thing I had to overcome. I remember the first time I traveled when I got my cane, I remember speaking to my dad, who's now a blessed memory, and I said, you know, Dad, I don't want people to pity me. And he said to me, well, why are you thinking it that, uh, that way? Why don't you just think of it as people are helping you? It's not pity. And I said, you know, that's probably a good way to look at it. Maybe I'm being too hard on myself. And people were couldn't have been nicer. They're saying, sure, take my elbow. I'm happy to help you through the airport. I'm happy to help you to the taxi stand when I go to a place I've never been to before. So I would say the first thing is don't be afraid to ask for help. And the second thing is, is that um, get a mentor. I think that's incredibly important. I guess this dovetails with, with getting help. But if you have a mentor, um, someone who's gone through it before you, they can give you this great insight of things you haven't even thought of, you haven't even dreamed about. Judge Casey so helped me out in terms of how to handle myself in a courtroom, notwithstanding the fact that probably down the road, uh, he knew I was going to lose my eyesight completely. And, and it was really, really helpful. And so I, I would say, and don't give up. Don't, don't, you're going to get frustrated. It, it gets very frustrating. It gets frustrating for me. And, and I just say, you know what, we've got to push through it. This is just, you know, another, another barricade in the road. We can get around it and you just move on. It's not going to, I don't let blindness defines me. I never want to be known as that blind, uh, that blind lawyer. I only want to be known as that lawyer that happens to be blind. It's a big difference. And, and that's, you know, just don't let it stop you. That's great advice. Given your experience uh, and your interesting journey uh, as an attorney, how do you define what it means to be a great lawyer or a great attorney? Uh, I think there's a few aspects to that. And, and I love that question. I know you ask that a lot. Um, I think the most important thing in terms of being a good lawyer is to have an enthusiasm. I call it that spark because as, as older attorneys, uh, I being older than you, of course, but the two of us being more seasoned attorneys, we can teach young people anything. We can teach you how to research a specific issue. I can teach you how to get a photograph into evidence or how to try a case. What I can't teach is that spark. If you don't have the enthusiasm, if you don't love what you do, then I don't think you can ever be a really, really great lawyer. That's where it has to start. I think the second point is something we've already uh, hit on a few things that, 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 a few times during the podcast. It's almost becoming a theme. Organization and preparation. There's no substitute. If you walk into the court, even if the facts are against you and you believe you're the most organized and you're the most prepared person in that courtroom, you're going to exude confidence. You may not win, but you're going to feel, you're going to exude confidence and you may surprise yourself. You may win that case. You were supposed to lose. It does happen. And you know that. And I know that it does happen. Mm -hmm. um, I think the other, the other thing to really keep in mind is no matter how small the case is for you, it's the most important case for that client. 
And I tell you that because it comes from experience. The first case I tried after, I was a prosecutor for five years in the Bronx DA's office having tried some huge, huge cases. And the first case I got when I went to the civil side was a small claims case. And I said, what am I doing here? How, how can I handle a small claims case? This is just insulting. But you gotta set your ego aside. And what I realized afterwards is this case was critical. It happened to be for an automotive um, company. And I cross-examined a particular plaintiff's expert that I didn't realize um, was gonna be testifying against this particular client all across the United States. What I didn't realize is they ordered the transcript and they just destroyed this guy based upon the testimony from a, a small claims case. So, and it got to the point where plaintiff's counsel couldn't even use him anymore. And I was so young, I didn't even know what I did. But I realized, wow, how important that little case was to that huge client I'll never take that for granted again. And the last point I would simply make in terms of being a great lawyer, and this sort of, I don't know if it makes you a great lawyer, but it makes you a great person. There's really a lack of civility that I'm seeing over the years in our profession. It's okay to fight hard against your adversary, but we can still walk out and be friends and respect each other. And, and I've seen things done and said in court. And I remember in this case I had in Memphis, um, this, this young attorney had, uh, we had done a brief against each other and I had made certain points. And in, in her response, her, he, her point headings were lie one, lie two, and lie three. And before we did the oral argument, I said to the judge, you know, I've been practicing at that time was probably for 30 years. And I said, I have to just tell you, judge, I've never been so insulted as a professional as I am in this case. And she goes, what are you talking about? I said, I, we may disagree on the facts. We may disagree on the law. But to characterize my arguments as lies, I'm just, I'm personally insulted. And I remember, I'll never forget this, the judge was a female judge turned to this female attorney and boy, she, she just really harangued her and said, if you ever pull a stunt like that in my courtroom again, you'll never, you'll never practice here. I promise you that. He's right about that. That, that is not the way to treat another lawyer. Okay. And the rest of the argument for me went great, but I realized that that was just, it was just a horrible thing to do. And, and I don't think she, she was nefarious about it. I just think she didn't know. And I just think it was a very poor way to handle it. And, and I think that that's what we have to overcome as lawyers. There's no, no reason to have ad hominems or personal attacks against each other. It's okay to disagree. It's okay. And someone ultimately will be, will be the ultimate arbiter of that. We may win, we may lose, but there's no reason to get personal. I wholeheartedly agree. It's a it's a good life lesson, you know, civility, respecting other people's opinions, not only in a courtroom or in the legal setting or in an adversarial setting, but in life. Uh, unfortunately, these times we've seen a lot of um, a lack of civility and respect for other individuals. And it's really important. It's important that uh, people like you and me uh, share that that level of importance that it means to us so other people hear it and just keep reinforcing it. And, um, and I thank you for that. And I thank you for joining me on this podcast and sharing your journey. It's quite a remarkable one. It's extremely unique. Uh, you're very impressive um, from what you've come through as far as adversity. And, you know, it's difficult enough to be uh, a skilled trial attorney, a skilled attorney, uh, being able to advocate for your client uh, in a courtroom, uh, in front of strangers, to think on your feet, 
and to have one of your senses taken away from you and to be able to excel at that is just an amazing accomplishment. And I'm so happy that I've been able to share you um, with uh, everybody out there that listens around the country and around the world. So thank you so much uh, for being so open and, and sharing uh, your world with us. Well, thank you so much for allowing me to share it. I appreciate that so much. And thank you all for joining us on this episode of the Mentor ESQ podcast. Uh, there's always links in the description of the podcast to find out more information. Uh, if you want to reach out to me or if you want to reach out to Cliff, I'm sure he'd be more than happy to speak with you and give whatever guidance uh, you would seek from him, as would I. Uh, if you enjoy this podcast, I ask you to please do me the favor of sharing it, uh, liking it, uh, send it over, let your family, friends, colleagues, classmates know about it. And uh, please continue to tune in uh, for future episodes of the Mentor ESQ podcast. I'm Andrew Smiley, and have a great day.